Hello, and welcome back to Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today as we turn our attention to the fourth chapter of the book of James. This is a letter from James, the pastor of the church there at Jerusalem, to his flock that is scattered around the Mediterranean. And we're going to dig into this fourth chapter where he really gives some challenges and some encouragement to the Christians as they seek to live their lives for God and as they deal with conflict within their fellowships and how to overcome that conflict and be right with God and behave rightly towards one another and what some of the roots are of that conflict. So I welcome you as you join us today, and I'm glad you could be part of this study of the book of James. So thank you for joining Grasping Scripture. Let's turn our attention towards God and his word, and let's start doing that by turning to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You have blessed us in so many ways, and you have given us your word. And Father, you have given us individuals that you have called to places of ministry and service that through the years have been able to remind us of your word and point out its claim on our lives as we claim to be followers of Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Christ who is our Redeemer, our Savior, our Sustainer. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have given to us to guide us, to comfort us, to challenge us, that we may be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. Now, Lord, help us to hear your word as we study these passages today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at the fourth chapter of James, He starts out this chapter by talking about, well, talking about our prayer life and talking about the life in the church with each other. And he's he's talking about how there's conflict and there's fights, and he relates it to prayer and our attitude towards God and this world. So let's look at it as he begins to develop these ideas. In verse 1 of James chapter 4, we find these words. It says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of others who have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Now, in those three verses, yeah, that was only three verses. In those three verses, James unloads on his congregation those scattered believers that were part of the church at Jerusalem that have fled the area. As he puts this out there, and it applies to us today too, he really calls them to task. He says, look, there is conflict and fighting among you, and when you get right down to it, there's a cause for it. And that cause is your evil desires, and that those desires are waging war within you, and that spills out to your relationships with those around you. 
the truth is, if you are not a person who is at peace within yourself, you will not be at peace with the people around you. You're a person that breeds conflict, that's miserable. You know, the statement, misery loves company. Well, I think that's true. And if you're ever around a miserable person, you'll notice it's kind of infectious. That misery likes to have other people be miserable too. I don't know what it is about us that is twisted that way, except maybe our nature being twisted by sin. But here we are, and James is saying, look, here's the root of the problem. You're quarreling and you're fighting. And he uses, well, he uses terminology here that directly relates to warfare. And he even describes it as waging war. And you may think as we get to verse two, and he says, you know, you, you want what you don't have. So you scheme and kill to get it. You know, yeah. Okay. In the church, they're disagreeing about stuff and they're scheming and killing to get it. Be mindful. Some of the people in the church had come out of the zealot sect of, of Jewish society and the zealots wanted their freedom from Rome and they wanted Israel to be reestablished as its own monarchy, its own kingdom. And the zealots, some of them were killers for their cause. So it's not a stretch to talk about you want what you don't have and you scheme and kill to get it. Uh, this very realistically reflects the history of some of the people in the church he's talking to. So whether it's literal or metaphorical, um, it still hit close to home. They would have heard this and it would have been an ouch moment. And I think even in our own lives, maybe we haven't schemed and killed. I hope we haven't. But as we get to the second part of verse two, you're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Folks, our lives need to be about our relationship to God, not about what other people around us have or what we have or don't have. Because when we have it, we tend to focus our desires on keeping it or getting more of it. And when we don't have it, we tend to resent or be jealous of those that do. We need to be careful of that. We need to guard our hearts carefully. Because as he reminds us, when we get to verse three, well, actually the rest of verse two, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. You're trying to obtain it instead of turning to the one who has everything, who says that he loves you dearly and asking him. And so verse three, and even when you ask, so if you get to the point where you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. I tell the story often about um, being a kid. And I remember as a kid, one of the things I loved was the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. This is not an ad. And that sweepstakes packet would show up at the house and my parents weren't going to fill it out and submit it. But I would see that thing and you know, money as a kid, the money didn't really register with me. Okay. Oh yeah, it's money. So what? There was a boat that they used to give away a big cruiser. I mean, it's not like a yacht, but it's a big fishing boat. 
Mind you, I'm not particularly a fisherman. And as a kid, I hadn't been out on a boat before. But the idea of this boat just enamored me. And and so every time that contest rolled around, I would, you know, we'll forget the fact I was a little kid. Okay. We'll forget the fact that we weren't actually entering. Um, every time that rolled around, I would be like, okay, God, I'm praying that we get this boat. I want this boat. I wanted that thing so bad. I prayed and I asked God to give us that boat. I'm pretty sure my parents were praying just the opposite, but still I was asking. And you know what? I never got the boat. Now I can sit here and go, see, that proves that God's not real, except that doesn't prove anything except I was a doofus because what I was asking for wasn't inherently a bad thing, but what I was asking for was all wrong because my motives were wrong. I wanted it because I wanted it. And in our relationship with God, what we should desire most is his will. We should desire knowing him better. We should desire following him closer. And we should desire to see his will done. In fact, there's even a model prayer about that. That his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And anything short of that is a wrong motive is a wrong desire. When we talk about praying in Jesus' name, folks, it's not magic words you end your prayer with, and if you forget them, God won't hear it. It is a reminder to us that what I just prayed for should be in the name of Christ. It should be something that Jesus would put his name on that helps us to understand and helps us to to frame our prayers in such a way that they are more in line with the heart and will of God. And when we don't approach prayer that way, then verse 3, even when we ask, we don't get it because our motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure what will please you. That's never how we are told we should pray. As we grow in a relationship with Christ, our prayers become conformed more to the will of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about we do not pray to change God, change the heart of God, but we pray so that our hearts will be changed to be in line more with God. I think he's on to something there. Now, as we pick up in verse four, well, he hits them again. I mean, he's talking about their fights and their quarrels and their, their evil desires and they, their jealousy and this, this war that rages in them because of their evil desires and their jealousy and their envy of those around them. And that that's the root cause of these conflicts that are going in, going on in the church, going on amongst believers because they're not focused where they ought to be, which is on Christ. Then he gets to verse four and he goes old Testament prophet on them. He says, you adulterers, 
Now he's not talking about them sleeping around. I, some of them might've been doing that, but the implication here is that you adulterers, that's old Testament promise or not promise prophecy. The prophets of the old Testament kept accusing the nation of Israel or Judah of being adulterous because their faithfulness was to be to God. And they kept chasing after false gods or the things of this world, committing adultery in that relationship that should have been exclusive with God. And they kept violating it. And here James uses the same terminology. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world? Now, we have a weird concept of friendship, okay? Our modern world, especially here in America where I am, the concept of friendship can mean all sorts of things. It's like using the word love. We, you know, I love my wife. I love chocolate. You know, totally different things, but we use the same word. Friendship. We have acquaintances. We have people we hang with. We have people we work with. We have, you know, all of these different levels of relationship. But in the New Testament time, to say I have friendship with someone, that person is my friend. I am a friend of Caesar or whatever. That carried a special weight to it. There was an exclusivity to it that isn't implied with the word friendship in our modern world. So understand that context. So to say that, don't you realize that friendship, that connectedness, that identifying with the world makes you an enemy of God? That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. It doesn't make you neutral. It doesn't make you kind of in the middle. It makes you an enemy of God. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So what does that mean? It means we should not desire to be a friend of this world. But instead, we should desire to be a friend of God. A term that was used of Moses and of Abraham. A person who trusts completely. A person who is so invested in the relationship with God, it's everything. And it governs every decision in their lives. Instead of, what can I get from this world? How can I be like this world? You see, there was great temptation to adhere to the standards of this world as Christians scattering around the Mediterranean and the Greco-Roman world, uh, to be accepted, to have success, to have um, uh, commercial success in your business ventures, to to not be looked at as weird and ostracized, but to be incorporated into society, to find positions of power and authority. All of that involved being a friend of this world. All of that was to get these things in the world. How do I need to behave? How do I need to prioritize things? What do I need to do or not do? And that began to govern their lives. And so, yeah, he called them like, you adulterers. You're cheating on God on that relationship that is supposed to be exclusive. And when you do that, you're not just unfaithful to God. You make yourself an enemy of God. I don't want to be that. 
Although I have to admit, there's probably times that in my heart I have done just that. And I suspect so have you. And if we haven't repented of that, we need to. And turn back to God. And stay committed. Verse 5. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit that he has placed within us should be faithful to him. It's the exclusivity of that relationship with God. It is him and nobody else. It is him, not the world. It's him. Verse 6, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's Proverbs 3. Um, It's that reminder, we need to be humble. We need to be faithful to God. We don't need to sell out for the things of this world. This world has nothing to offer that is greater than God and what he offers. And if we belong to him, then we belong to him. Don't be adulterous in that relationship. Keep it all about him. Verse 7 says, and playing on that idea of humility and and coming off that quote out of Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He says, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Now, see the, the juxtaposition that is posed there, the Uh, the contrast that is set just in those verses, resist the devil and he will flee from you, but come close to God and God will come close to you. You see, we need to move away from the devil. We need to move towards God. The devil, when we move away from him, he runs from us. When we resist him, he's gone. He's out of there. I mean, he's looking for the easy But God, verse 8, come close to God, and God will come close to you. He's not distant and unobtainable. He desires a relationship with you. Turn to him. He is there. Verse 8 goes on. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So there he's back to challenging. I'm going, here's the situation. Your loyalty is divided. It's time to make a clean start. Come close to God. He's going to come close to you. Resist the devil. He's going to be out of here. It's not going to be an issue. Wash your hands. That's a symbolic thing to make yourself clean on the outside. Ritualistically clean. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Uh, That's internal. That's not just do the stuff to be clean on the outside. Be clean on the inside. Purify your heart. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. If we purify our hearts and we wash our hands, our loyalty is not going to be divided anymore. 
that doesn't mean go wash your hands literally. Although, you know, if you need to go wash your hands, um, but be pure, get the relationship right between you and God and quit being divided between God and the rest of the world or and the world as a whole. You can't have both. It's an exclusive relationship. Pick which one you're going to live out that relationship with. Is it going to be God or is it going to be the world? And the right answer there is God. Come close to God. He will come close to you. It goes on in verse 9. He says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. In other words, we shouldn't rejoice in our sin. We shouldn't laugh about it or, or take joy in it. But instead, we should, in humility, be sorrowful. We should be repentant. We should have grief over what we have done to the heart of God, to this one who loves us and sacrifices everything for us. And we should look at what we've done, who we have been, and we should grieve. And in verse 10, we should humble ourselves. Humble yourself before the Lord. But see, it doesn't stay in the pits of that grief. It doesn't stay in that sorrow. Because as he says, humble yourself before the Lord, the rest of the verse is, and he will lift you up in honor. You see, when we turn to him and we humble ourselves and we are grieved over our sin and we repent before God, we wash our hands and purify our hearts before him. And he will lift us up in honor. We get what is truly our heart's desire. Not what the world leads us to think will make us happy or give us pleasure. But we experience what it's really about. In verse 11, he gives us some warnings. And the first one is about how we treat each other, what we say to each other. Uh, now, this goes back a little bit to this idea of conflict within the body of Christ, but he approaches it a little different. He says, don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. Now, in other translations, it'll even be translated there as slander each other, make these accusations against each other. And you may say, oh, well, how is that slandering or criticizing or judging God's law? Well, very simply, God's law is straightforward. Whether we go Leviticus or we go uh, Mark chapter 12, it says that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In what way is speaking evil against each other and criticizing and judging each other treating our neighbor as ourself? It's not. And see, especially within the body of Christ, 
We are to build each other up. We are to encourage each other. Do we sometimes need to hold each other accountable for things and confront each other? Yes. But it's not speaking evil against criticizing and judging each other. And when we behave that way, what we are doing is throwing mud on God's commands for us. We are throwing mud on God's law. And we need to stop it. And he's not talking like Old Testament law, you got to do this to be right with God sort of thing. He's saying the law that God has put on our hearts, the law of grace at work within us, we behave in such a way that says that doesn't matter to us. And that's not okay. He says, but your job, how we're supposed to do things, what we're supposed to, but your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. Ouch. Wait. So instead of looking at other people and deciding what's wrong with them, my job is to actually live what God has called me to live. And that I don't get to judge whether God's law applies to me or not. Yeah. Verse 12. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Our action towards our neighbor is pretty straightforward. We are to love our neighbor. Who's going to judge our neighbor? God. Again, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we build each other up. We encourage each other in our walk with God. I mean, James himself has laid out several things just in this chapter that, hey, you're doing this wrong. This is bad. Don't do this. But do these things to be right with God. He said, well, is it he judging them? No, he's holding them accountable to what they said. We believe this. And it means this in our lives. And yet that's not what's happening. That's accountability. But to judge someone is to decide whether they're worthy of God's grace. That's not in our hands. That's in his. Or to judge whether the law of God's grace applies to someone or not. That's God's business. Our business is to proclaim him and to live for him. And he says, so what right do you to have, have to judge your neighbor? God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save and to destroy. Uh, that, again, plays back into that idea of our humility. How we treat each other. And when we let that humility wane... Then arrogance kicks in, and arrogance looks a whole lot like the first half of this chapter. We don't need that in our lives. Now, in rounding out the fourth chapter of James, starting in verse 13, and there's only 17 verses in the chapter, James gives a clear warning about self-confidence. And you may say, well, it's good to have self-confidence. Well, that can become arrogance real quick. Okay? 
And self-confidence can be based in nonsense. Okay, our world right now, our educational system works on building up self-esteem and self-confidence and yet does a profoundly horrible job of it. We are living in a world filled with people that really have no confidence. But listen to what James says, because this is talking about self-confidence, but it's also giving us context for life. And especially as believers, because he's writing to believers, especially as believers, we need to understand there is a spiritual context, a spiritual reality that we exist within. In fact, believe in God or not, you exist in that context. And the impact on eternity is profound. The decisions you make in this context have ramifications throughout eternity. The biggest one of those, the most important one of those, is whether you have turned to Christ for salvation or not. Well, into that context, here's verse 13. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. So maybe that's the claim. And it was common, itinerant business, These the, the, the scattered Jewish background believers that are traveling around the Mediterranean, they... They're more mobile. And if they were in a business where it looked like, hey, it's lucrative over there. I'm going to go over there and do business for a little while. And and we're going to turn a profit. We're going to make some money. And and that's the goal. You know, that's our plan. We've we've got a business plan. It's been vetted. We've got backers. We've got a venture capitalist that's going to come in and, and back us. And then maybe if things go well, we'll have an IPO. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Um, is it look here if you said today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and and we'll stay there a year we'll do business and and we'll make a profit you know that sounds good sounds reasonable right they've got a plan they've got a game plan they've got a uh place they're gonna go they're gonna set up they're gonna do a particular business maybe they've got a niche market whatever sounds great but see the context needs to be understood and here's 14. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? I don't think James is asking a rhetorical question there. He wants them to stop and think, and can you give an answer to this? Because you're saying, hey, today or tomorrow, we're going to go there and we're going to do this. And in a year, this is going to happen. You've made your plans. You've hopefully gotten everything lined up to do it. But how do you know what your life is going to be like tomorrow? Then he reminds him, your life, it's it's like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. And that's the truth of it. You don't have control. So if you make your plans for this life like you're the one in control there is going to come a stark and permanent reality check. Some of us get little warnings along the way when we think we're in control of life and then something blindsides you. 
I mean, it just comes out of nowhere. Maybe it's a doctor uttering a word like cancer. Or maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a boss uttering the word downsize. I don't know what it is for you. But I know that all of us will experience it. Many of us have experienced it. Things don't go to plan. You know why? Because you're not in charge. And neither am I. God is in charge. So again, let me pick up in 14. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. 15. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. You think, so there's nothing wrong with their statement. They just need to just start it with, if the Lord wants us to, then we're going to go to a certain town, stay there a year, do business and make a profit. Yeah. And it's not about the wording. It's about the attitude. I have a plan. I'm going to do this. This is going to happen versus I'm going to follow God. And I've made preparations for this to happen, but whatever God sees fit to do, I'm good with it. There's a huge difference there. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, and that also begs a question, have we sought the Lord's will on this? Have we gone before him saying, God, is this what you want me to do with my life, with my resources, with my time, with my abilities? If the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans. And all such boasting is evil. It falls back to that arrogance, to that I'm going to do, I'm in control, I want, I, I, I. Remember that exclusive relationship with God that you're supposed to have? It's you and him, not you, him, and the world. James is warning this is one of those places where that arrogance and that self-confidence comes in and it starts making us chase the world and the pleasures the world promises instead of the true joy that is found in God. Live a life surrendered to God and remember the end of verse 10 and he will lift you up in honor. That's a whole lot better than I have a plan and the plan doesn't work. I would much rather be humble before God and be lifted up in honor than look like I'm incompetent because I ran my plan and at the end of it figured out I'm not actually in charge. I can't control anything because that's the truth. Verse 17, as he closes out, he gives what seems to be an axiom, and this probably isn't something original to James. The way he uses it here, it seems like it's something that they would have known and heard. Maybe it's a maybe it's a phrase he used often back at Jerusalem. I don't know. It just seems to have that feel to it. 
Nonetheless, it sums up other scriptures pretty well. Verse 17 says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. And he just closes the chapter with it. Okay, he didn't put chapter breaks, but chapter four closes there. And what a statement to close on. It almost just hangs in the air for your consideration there. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do. Now, if you're like me, your mind immediately starts going through that list of what ought I to do? What in, in living a life surrendered to God, living a life that is obedient to Christ, what are the things I ought to do? And as you start formulating those things in your head, these are the things I ought to do. Then you get hit with, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Yeah. We're back to that faith and works thing, aren't we? We're back to that. I have faith in Christ. I have that personal relationship with Christ at work in my life. I've got his spirit indwelling me, guiding me, comforting me, challenging me. But then I actually have to do. I have to put my faith into action. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do. And then not do it. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way it challenges us to our core about our relationships with others and about our relationship with you. Lord, help us to be exclusive in our relationship with you, to be faithful in our relationship with you, that we would not chase after the things of this world, that we would not harbor pride and arrogance in our hearts, but that we would be broken before you, repenting before you, humbling ourselves before you, that we may be lifted up in honor and that you be glorified. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.